0: Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is Michelle Witty. I'm here with my co-host, John Kiriakou, getting ready to go against the grain for another couple of hours here on this Wednesday that is a lot rainier than I yeah. think. I think possibility of rain is not the same as just a steady, misty curtain all day long. You know, know.
1: I I got up in the middle of the night to get something to drink and it was pouring in the middle of the night and it was supposed to have stopped raining at like five o'clock and it never did.
0: So we're here to take on big weather, (laughs) 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 bring them down for the racket they're running. No, we have a lot. We have a lot to get into, of course, we have Anthony Blinken in Europe uh, meeting with uh, NATO, members of NATO meeting yep. with the G7, uh, talking about n- new possible sanctions and other reactions to the war in Ukraine. Uh, we have a new Durham filing. That That's seems actually
1: kind of exciting. Pretty
0: interesting. 48 mm-hmm.
1: pages and it's new mm-hmm. and there are fingers being pointed.
0: Mm-hmm. So we're going to get into this in the second hour. We have uh, some sort of a one step forward, one step back when it comes to energy policy in the United States and the relationship with tribal governments. A uh, new deal Hammered out, still has to pass Congress, but a deal between stakeholders for sort of how to proceed with projects has been hammered out, just as the Supreme Court has overturned a lower court ruling that blocked a Trump era ruling that restricted rights of states and tribes uh, to veto projects that would affect their water. So, as I said, one step forward, one step back. You know,
1: I'm not an expert, but I've been doing a lot of reading lately as part of this new book that I'm writing. About, uh, not the book's not about, I've been reading a lot about um, treaties that the government over the centuries has negotiated with the native tribes, and they have been consistently screwed at every single step of the way. Oh, yeah. There is so much in this country that rightfully belongs to the tribes that the government has Admitted in its own negotiations Mm -hmm. belongs to the tribes. And yet the tribes have virtually nothing.
0: This is again, this is we say this all the time. It's it's not just the moral right. No, no. It is the legal right. And again, according to the laws of colonizers. Yes. And this, I think, is something that people really don't understand, that even according to laws of the American governments and treaties uh, and contracts set up, By the American colonial government, we are not even abiding by those and just sort of uh, tossing them aside, completely ignoring them and then going, oh, well, they're too old to enforce anyway. It is it is shocking. I was
1: reading something just this morning before I came to work about um, about this guy. He's a Native American. He lives in Oklahoma and he's filing a suit against the state for one thing or another. And it said that he's a member of the Seminole tribe. And I thought to myself, the Seminole tribe. Well, they're they're in Florida. Well, they were until the Trail of Tears when they had to march like this, like a, you know, a roller coaster, 5,231 miles. Uh, They lost literally everything they had. And they said, "Okay, this thing called Oklahoma Territory, it's going to be called Indian Territory. And this is yours until it's not anymore. And now it's a state and you get screwed. So tough luck. Yeah.
0: Uh, in other news, and we are of course going to get into Oklahoma's uh, absolutely bonkers abortion ban and, oh and what God. that means. We're going to talk about uh, Title Forty Two and the strange yep. way that immigration seems to now be tied to COVID funding. Yeah, um, because that makes so much sense. Well, it kind of does in the <laughs> sense, like they have, because Title Forty Two was a public health measure. I do not believe this, right? I think this is pure obstruction on, on the part of uh, Republicans. Yeah, but they can stand up and say. You want all this money for a pandemic, but then you're also telling us the pandemic is over. And I mean, yeah, those two things can absolutely be true at the same time. Yes. But uh, that's what they're going to try to do. And we'll have to see if Democrats are going to be forced to choose whether they want uh, to r- lift some of the restrictions on immigration that have been in place for such a long time. Uh, or if they want this $10 billion for right uh, vaccines and testing for people. They're going to have to negotiate. Yep. It's the only way through it. Yep. Uh, on healthcare, Also, the Biden administration yesterday announced with a lot of fanfare, it came out of the blue, but like big press conference, whatever, uh, that it is going to fix what's been called the family glitch in the Affordable Care Act. Uh, this is, I think, according to Kaiser Permanente research, this glitch affects five million people. And it involves who's been eligible to buy federally subsidized plans, because uh, until now, Some people who are offered insurance through their employers are still able to buy these subsidized uh, government marketplace plans if if the premiums offered by their employer are above a certain threshold, a certain percentage of their income. It's 10% of their household income. The problem has been that has only been for individual plans. So if you're a member of a family and you're offered health insurance through your employer and it's too expensive, you personally can get a subsidized Affordable Health Care Act uh, plan, but not your spouse and not your children. And so this glitch has now been fixed. It's expected that a million people will switch over to ACA plans now and that 200,000 people will gain health coverage. It mostly affects women and children. Uh, You know, great. You're still going to have to pay several hundred dollars a month uh, in premiums, probably Mm -hmm. for this health Mm -hmm. insurance. And then should you ever actually need to use your insurance, like you need to go to the doctor or the hospital, you're still going to have to pay probably (laughs) hundreds and thousands of dollars. So, like, I am glad for the people that this change will affect, but it, it does not take away from the absolutely disgusting and exploitative healthcare system we have set up in this country. So, like, great. Terrific. I'm very, you know, genuinely glad for those those million people. But like, this is just this system is very bad and getting worse every day. And this doesn't change oh my that. God, yes.
1: A cousin of mine asked me one time about ambulances in the United States. And uh, I said, yeah, if if, uh, you know, you get into an accident or something and you're you know, lucid, they'll ask you, do you want us to call an ambulance? And he said, why would anybody ask something like that? And I said, because ambulances are expensive. Yeah. You know, it's like seven hundred, eight hundred dollars to get in an ambulance and sometimes insurance doesn't cover it. He was flabbergasted.
0: Yeah, it's disgusting. Everyone, everyone in the world is flabbergasted at this point. Yeah. Most most countries uh, treat their citizens better, even countries that are very poor. Yes. Right. Oh, yes, man. Yes.
1: Without a doubt. I, I, I was I was uh, trimming a palm tree once in Bahrain. And, uh, you know, palm trees can be dangerous because the ends of the fronds have these little spikes. They're like nails. Yeah. And my hacksaw got stuck and I pushed it and the the little nail on the frond went into my thumb all the way to the bone. And I couldn't get it out even with a pair of pliers. I'm trying to pull it out with pliers. So I drove to the hospital. Had to have surgery on it, mm-hmm. right, to pull this thing because they're hooked at the end like a fish hook. Yeah. And the bill was zero. There was no bill yeah. because you don't pay for healthcare. care. Health is a human right.
0: Yeah. And yeah. so
1: they told me good luck and they sent me home.
0: I happened the other day. I was cleaning out a, a box and I came across my um, health insurance, public health insurance card from Taiwan. Ah, yeah. Uh, where I was never a citizen. You know, I was a, I was a legal temporary resident, but I was never a citizen. But still, of course, because I was going to live there, the Taiwanese mm-hmm. government said, OK, here's your card. Here's how you go and access yep. health care because you're a human being living on our uh, island exactly. and you should be able to go to the doctor. Man, I had a root canal in Taiwan. Maybe it cost $200. Yeah, Maybe. I
1: had a, I had a root canal in Romania that cost me $200 one time. So great. Only because I chose the upgraded, you know, ceramic crown instead of the silver crown. Yeah, that, probably, probably yeah. too. You're
0: like, oh yeah, I'll splurge. <laughs> I'll splurge because I'm not going to go into bankruptcy and lose my house. If right. cause. Yeah. Anyway, there's, a, there's other stuff to get into. <laughs> also, of course, at that, at that. Ceremony, uh, Barack Obama attended uh, and, and once again said, oh, the ACA was only ever going to be a starter. And so 12, 12 years on, great job making this <laughs> tweak. Uh, managed to really upstage Joe Biden in the process. And the, the contrast between the two was, was pretty embarrassing. I also- felt
1: sorry for, for Joe Biden, actually. Everybody flocked to Barack Obama. They were all gathered around him. And for a moment, Biden just kind of hesitated. And then he turned around and walked away. Yeah. I felt sorry for very it. Very slowly also.
0: Yeah, very slowly. We really, well, everyone our government is way too old. Way, way too, too have old. Some, you know, have a variety of ages. We're not saying purge yeah. all the old people. Right. I have to also just say it. it, it also embarrassing, right? Yesterday. So today the House Energy and Commerce uh, Committee Democrats are going to hold a hearing. Uh, about, you know, gouging at the gas station, big oil and America's pain at the pump. And they're yeah. going to call executives from a bunch of big oil companies to testify. Uh, so yesterday, yeah, okay. chairman of the House Democratic Caucus, Hakeem Jeffries, uh, was, was talking about this and talking about oil prices and called on oil firms to show some patriotism and voluntarily pass some of their record profits down to everyday consumers in the form of lower gas prices. And just, that's not how, that's not how this is going to no. happen. That's no, absolutely that's not. That's not how it works. Well, it's possible also that a lot of these companies are are barred from doing that. You are not right. allowed to do anything but try to get more profits. I mean, it's just it's so stupid. It's so stupid. It's I feel compelled to point it out. This is not the way that you're going to get these companies to do anything asking them. Absolutely right. It's it's embarrassing. Hey, something else
1: uh, very strange happened this morning uh in Buffalo, New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, a state supreme court justice by the name of John McCallsky was found dead in his home of an apparent suicide. And there's an interesting backstory to this. The FBI raided Judge Mikulski's house a couple of weeks ago as part of an investigation, an ongoing investigation in Florida, into a former client of his from when he was an attorney who's under investigation for sex trafficking, drug trafficking, and an attempt to bribe a DEA agent. And it's it's unclear... What exactly Mikulski's role may have been in all this, but he attempted to kill himself a year ago by laying down on train tracks, and the train actually ran over him and he lost a leg, but he recovered. He claimed that it was an accident. It was not a suicide attempt, and he was allowed to resume his position as a state Supreme Court justice. I don't know if we'll ever know the full story, but uh, the FBI raided the judge's house two weeks ago and whatever he thought they were going to find, it was too much for him. And he killed himself this morning.
0: But so it was his client who was under investigation for sex trafficking. Right. Yeah. Not him. Yeah. At least not yet. Very strange.
1: Very strange.
0: Um, In more political news, the White House is apparently going to extend the pause on student loan repayments through august 31st right it was they were supposed to start up yeah. may 1st right now they're just again it, extending the pause is not the same thing as actually actually making a change and, and getting rid of any of this absolutely egregious debt yeah. yeah and they're going to extend it through august 31st then they're going to have to say oh the pandemic is still going on the economic yeah. fallout is still going on i mean who knows perhaps we will just be kicking in a, the
1: can down the road perhaps
0: we'll be in a full-on recession by then but then they'll be in the position. I mean, the midterm elections aren't until November. Yeah. So then are they going to right before the election make everyone start paying?
1: Maybe that's the plan.
0: That's Isn't stupid. that awful? That's just taking. I don't want to be graphic or trigger people, but that is, you know, that is political suicide. Yeah, I think so, too. I mean, I don't know. You also have you also have people arguing that the, the you know, the number of people in this country who who carry student debt is actually pretty few, that this is a niche argument, whatever. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, George Galloway pretty mad on Twitter poor, also poor this George. morning. He he got slapped with the uh, the Russian state affiliated media label on his private Twitter account, and he has he is angry and is saying that he is going to take legal action. He uh, you know he's saying I'm I'm leader of a British political party. I spent 30 years in the British Parliament. I'm not on any RT shows. I'm not affiliate. I don't do any Russian state media. Mm-hmm. He's appealing directly to Elon Musk. Jeez. Uh, Musk really has been, you know, appealing to Elon Musk saying, like, oh, I had hoped, I had hoped things would be different under your uh, your benevolent reign. I mean, okay. This is, <laughs> Musk, <laughs> Musk took a seat on the board, what, yesterday? Right. Two yesterday. Days ago? And also, again, yeah, look, Musk is going to operate his little Twitter fiefdom in the same way that, you know, and according to his sort of personal and idiosyncratic interests, sure. in the same way, you know, be- Bezos operates his little fiefdom and J- Bill Gates has his little fiefdoms over there at The Guardian and, you know. I mean, there's a appealing directly to to very wealthy individuals is Good is always a funny. I like George and movie. I but respect yeah, I hope he, him. I hope he wins. Yeah, I do too. I mean, it's it's uh it's ridiculous that they're slapping individual people with these labels. Also, did you did you catch the saga of the uh the Capitol Hill fox, the Senate fox yesterday? No. Oh, I missed. There's this. a fox running around the Capitol, An particularly fox? around. The, yeah, yeah. A, a <laughs> actual, you know, whatever Rufus <laughs> Canis or whatever Lupus, fox yeah. are Lupus Canis. <laughs> Yeah, he bit uh, a person I'd never heard of, Ami Bera. All right, let me go down. I put his name here in the it, lower down in the script, but I was too excited to save it. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, Ami Bera was actually bitten by the fox, he says. As he was walking out, he like heard a rustling behind him, and then he came out. Yeah, and the Capitol Police are warning there's been aggressive aggressive fox activity, <laughs> and he should be ca- careful walking around the Capitol grounds. I hope it's not rabid. I wouldn't wish a rabid fox—he's going to have to go and get— um. A series of rabies shots, which I hear are very, very unpleasant. But when I was four years old, the the fox fox makes
1: it away unscathed. I hope it does. When I was four, a fox chased me from the backyard of our house to the front yard. My mom was washing windows on the front porch. I still remember. And I told her a fox chased me. And uh, she told me that it was probably a squirrel (laughs) because I was four. Right. I knew the difference between a fox and a squirrel all my life. She mentioned this like 50 years later.
0: Remember that time a squirrel chased you? Yeah. Mm -hmm. They
1: never believed me that it was a fox. And see, now there's a fox inside the Congress
0: and it's biting people. Team fox, though. I I hope it I hope it gets away and doesn't bite anyone else. We're going to come back and talk about some more serious topics. Unfortunately, Uh, that's what we've got. We'll try and we'll try and get some levity in there, too. You will hear all of that on Political Misfits. We're live in D.C. and we'll be right back.
1: political misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. Secretary of State Tony Blinken is in Germany today to discuss with his German counterpart an additional $100 million in military aid to Ukraine and a slate of new U.S. and European Union sanctions against Russia for what Blinken says are Russian atrocities against Ukrainian civilians. Germany and Lithuania have expelled Russian diplomats after allegations of war crimes in Bucha were made public a few days ago. Meanwhile, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said today that Ukraine is engaged in discussions about security guarantees with the U.S., the U.K., France, Germany, Turkey, Poland, Italy, Ireland, and Israel. Almost all of them are NATO countries. The trick is to somehow ensure that this is not going to be de facto NATO protection. Meanwhile, the United Nations General Assembly is expected to vote today to expel Russia from the UN Human Rights Council. We're joined by Dr. Jeremy Kuzmarov. He's managing editor of Covert Action magazine and the author of four books on U.S. foreign policy, including Obama's Unending Wars and The Russians Are Coming Again. Welcome back, Jeremy. Thanks for having me. Well, we're glad you could join us. Let's start with Tony Blinken's trip to Germany. There hasn't been a whole lot in the news about Blinken uh, in the last week or so, and even this trip isn't being widely covered for some reason. I actually had to search for information about it. We know that he's discussing sanctions and security guarantees with the Germans. What else should we expect to come out of this visit?
2: Uh well, you know, some of it maybe kind of kept uh, you know, hush hush. Right. But I'm sure they're discussing alternative with the uh blockage of the uh, Nord Stream two pipeline. Uh Germany's kinda of scrambling, you know, to get alternative source of energy and natural gas. And there have been some quiet visits of, uh, I think, you know, uh, U.S. Uh, you know, firms uh, and executives, you know, oil and gas executives uh, have visited. Uh, some, I think, with the support of the U.S. embassy. Uh, so there may be you know contracts in the works, works for U.S. companies or Qatar. You know, I think Qatar is one alternative yes. source. Uh, so perhaps there's some deals being in the works with the Qataris. So Blinken may be there to uh, oversee some of that. Although I don't think they're going to publish. Size
1: there. I think you're probably uh, right, and you know, and I wonder too if uh, because there are so many meetings and and because things change day to day, if there is less of an agenda for this meeting than there would be for for other meetings, and that they're just sort of playing it by ear to see what the Russians are up to and then respond to the Russians on some of these issues. That's just speculation on my part. The U.S. military, Jeremy, has not been able to confirm. Uh, these these reports of Russian atrocities in Bucha that are alleged to have been committed during the withdrawal of Russian troops. The Western media has pointed the finger directly at Russians, though. And Germany and Lithuania have expelled Russian diplomats because of it. What can you tell us about what happened at Bucha? I I watched the, the mainstream cable networks last night, and it was positively grisly what they are uh, alleging Russian troops did to civilians, including to children in Bucha. What can you tell us?
2: Well, uh, I don't know. know, I'm not on the ground there, but I've read uh, different reports. And uh, I mean, there's a discrepancy because uh, even the mayor at the time, uh, you know, these reports came out a few days later. Yeah, four days later. The mayor right after, yeah. I think on March 30th, when it allegedly happened, um, you know, he reported the Russian troops had left, but there was no report of atrocities at that time. It only the reports, you know, came out several days later. So why wasn't he reporting this when it happened? And he was, you know, pro-Ukrainian mayor. So uh, it's rather suspicious. And uh, covert action had a piece uh, just published today, right, uh, where the uh, journalist documented that the presence of Azov battalion wow. members, uh, a neo-Nazi named Sergey uh, Kor- Korotkik uh, who had been given citizenship in Ukraine after the Maidan coup uh so there's you know speculation that the Azov battalion or Nazi groups or Ukrainians were behind these horrific massacres, and they're trying to set up Russia in a false flag attack uh as you know uh, some are suggesting that the Ukrainian army is becoming more desperate uh that um, you know some Ukrainian units are isolated uh in the East, and Russia has been bombing the you know fuel supplies and ammunition. And that Ukraine desperate for uh, foreign military intervention, so they they have staged this incident. it's uh, It's a theory, but it's ha- plausible, given some of the details uh, that w- that are coming out about this and discrepancies in reports or, or oddities. yeah
0: yeah, it's just the way this war is being reported, really It just starts to beggar belief on all sides, right? I mean every every time something like this comes up, uh, Russia claims that it's staged. Uh, At the same time, you know, you have, on the other hand, uh, a steady stream of unconfirmed uh, atrocities committed by Russia that are, you know, supposedly committed by Russia that are never confirmed. And you have, you know, uh, a lot of pressure to take as gospel anything Ukrainian officials say, who also have motivations to uh, to do what they can to get support on their side. But like, it is, I mean, I do th- I beggars believe that every report of atrocities has been staged in, in either case, right, on all sides. And it is just, I don't know, I just want to make the point that it's very frustrating when you're not actually on the ground uh, to try to be able to to make sense of this when of course, you know, civilians are killed in wars, uh, soldiers do terrible things in, in all armies. I, I don't find that difficult to believe at all. And yet you also have an uh, almost farcical levels of um, effort to whip up support for Ukraine by any means necessary. It just it creates uh, a fog I have not seen before, even even with Syria, I think, where where there was a lot of this kind of thing going on, uh, it pales in comparison to this. And it uh, just makes it frustrating to to try to break down.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I fully agree. And, you know, even journalists would have a hard time covering this. I mean, it's hard to operate in the war zone. Uh, if you know you're not there in the scene at the time you don't know exactly what's going on uh you know only a few people really know what's going on and i think what is uh you know unique about this ukraine war is that the you know ukrainians are being pre- presented as this moral beacon uh and this you know people are just rallying behind them uh when uh, there are these nazi units on the azov battalion is known for committing horrific atrocities for years in eastern Ukraine and is very clearly behind some of these atrocities. But this is being completely whitewashed uh, in the Western media. And the public has developed this kind of cartoonish view of the conflict, which has nothing to do with with the reality.
1: Jeremy, we've been discussing security guarantees here on the show for for some weeks now. Um, How can Ukraine, do you think, negotiate security guarantees without them being de facto NATO Article 5 protections? How would that work? If, if there's going to be a country that guarantees uh, Ukrainian security in the face of a Russian threat and that country happens to be a member of NATO, isn't it pretty much the same thing?
2: Um, well, I'm not an expert on, on the logistics or the, the legality, but, I mean, I think ultimately it would be hoped that Ukraine would be a, you know, a neutral country, uh, and that would be crucial. You know, it wouldn't be associated with NATO. Uh, I think that's you know, what the Russians want, and that even Zelensky, uh, I think, said he would be willing to adhere to, uh, and that may be the only way. Uh, you know, to reach a, a settlement with the Russian because the Russians are extremely hostile and suspicious of NATO. And they see that as a major threat. And I think they're going to continue the war uh, until they have a guarantee uh, of Ukraine's, you know, separation from NATO and neutrality.
1: That actually makes sense to me. I, I think that's the only way to do it. Um, Jeremy, Russia will likely be expelled from the UN Human Rights Council today. And, uh Really, the question I think is an easy one. Does that matter in any way? Saudi Arabia has long chaired this council, and it has always appeared to be toothless. Does the Russian expulsion make any difference?
2: Well, yeah, I I don't think so. As you point out, if Saudi Arabia is the chair, I mean, I couldn't think of a greater oxymoron. I mean, that's one of the worst countries, you know, as far as human rights abuses in the world you know murdering journalists uh, beheading clerics and and criminals and supporting terrorists uh, in Syria and across the middle east uh, so i mean it's just you know i mean the un has lost a lot of credibility in the last decades and human rights sadly what what was a noble principle of the us you know working around the world to try and you know stop human rights abuses instead it's become human rights has become weaponized against countries that are enemies of the United States, like Russia. And those abuses are played up to support military interventions, whether overt or covert. And that's really a betrayal of, of the UN mission. And I think the moral integrity of the UN, uh, sadly, has been compromised in the last decades.
1: Let's talk for a minute, too, about sanctions. You know, we we heard this morning that uh, the United States and the European Union were going to impose new sanctions on Russia. And it, it made me think of, of something that I used to think about at the CIA all the time when I would hear about new Iranian sanctions. What could there possibly be that's left that you can sanction? And we heard today that uh, new sanctions are being imposed on Vladimir Putin's two daughters. Um, I didn't know he had two. I, I thought he had one daughter. Apparently, they found another one that they can sanction. Uh, what, what kind of sanctions are we talking about here? It seemed to me that everything was already sanctioned.
2: Yeah, I mean, this may be just kind of playing to an audience, you know, trying to look tough, uh, uh, that we're, you know, standing up to the Russians and, you know, it's more political than anything else. Uh, the, the New York Times had an article today that they're trying to find ways to sanction Putin, but you know, a lot of these properties they attribute to him actually are properties uh, you know owned by the Russian government, and you know any president would have access to them, and you know it seemed very difficult to actually institute any kind of sanctions against him personally. Uh, and then I know they've been trying to sanction like Nord Stream Two pipeline officials, even though they block them. I mean, it just seems kind of absurd, you know. They've already blocked the pipeline, and now they want to put up, promote sanctions on officials, uh, you know, who are working uh, you know, with the pipeline. I mean, I, you know, again, it, it's just it's completely absurd. And I think, you know, Russia is is finding ways to get around the sanctions as they've done for the last five or seven years. I mean, I I don't know how bad their economy is right now. They obviously are suffering. But I think they are finding ways ways to get around them may uh, be able to survive
1: this. Can you explain to us a little bit about what Russia's military strategy is now in Ukraine? And I, I have a, a reason for asking. Hear me out. The Russians have largely withdrawn from the north of Ukraine, and they're concentrating on the east and the south. The uh, western countries are worried about what's going to happen in Odessa in the coming weeks. Uh, Today, the New York Times had an op-ed saying that Russia's withdrawal from the area around Kyiv was a major military loss for them, like of historic proportions. But then if you look at the Russian press, they said that they never intended in the first place to remain in Kyiv. They did that as a feint to distract the Ukrainian government while they focused on the East and the South. So what? are Russian military intentions right now. And then over the longer term, Jeremy, are those intentions still consistent with what the Russians said early on that they're most interested in Luhansk and Donetsk and the Crimea?
2: Well, yeah, from from my understanding, they they've been bombing uh, fuel and ammunition supplies to try and, you know, uh, cut off the supply lines to the Ukrainian soldiers who are based in eastern Ukraine. And then they're going to, uh, you know, systematically and methodically, I guess, uh, either induce their defection or, 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 you know, take them out and reclaim that region of the East, and then maybe, you know, move into Odessa and some other uh, strategic cities. Uh, now, the the original goal, you know, was claim, was uh, demilitarization and denazification. I guess there is some consistency. I mean, it, it is true that. A lot of the Ukrainian regiments are, you know, these Azov battalion, uh, neo-Nazi. I mean, not all of them, uh, but they are a significant element within the Ukrainian military. And those are on the front line of eastern Ukraine who are bearing the brunt of the Russian assault. As far as demilitarization, yeah, I mean, I think they've also tried to – you know cripple their air force and, and navy and yeah by taking out the ammunition and, and so fuel supply they're basically crippling the capability of the Ukrainian military which had been assaulting the you know people of eastern ukraine uh for 8 years uh and terrorizing the people there so uh there does seem to be some consistency in the strategy yeah maybe Kiev was less central, and it's not clear you know, if they'd be satisfied with the you know, major defeat of the Ukrainian military, if they would accept partition of the country at the bargaining table, or if they would want to promote regime change. is still unclear. I mean, they stated their goal is not to promote regime change. Uh, so we'll see. We'll see if that's the case.
1: Well, let's talk about that. They, they go, let's say that they go to the negotiating table. They go back to Istanbul, let's say, and they're able to finally work something out. What does that do to the rest of the uh, international community? What does that do to these onerous sanctions and, and these attacks on the Russian economy and financial system? I can't imagine that the European Union and the United States just magically lift sanctions if, if the Ukrainians and the Russians come to a, an agreement at the negotiating table.
2: Yeah, I I think the U.S. and and European Union seek regime change within Russia, uh, and that's the purpose of the sanctions. Uh, But I think that strategy is clearly backfiring because the reports we have is that Putin's popularity has increased since the war started uh so you know their calculation is that the economy would tank and the people would rebel against putin that doesn't seem to be happening right now and russia could emerge stronger you know if, if they reclaim the eastern provinces and they're able to gain a kind of corridor around crimea uh and retake you know and take over certain uh strategic uh you know regions or other areas stopping short of complete takeover of ukraine i mean and if some kind of settlement is reached where Ukraine is indeed demilitarized and finally the war ends, but don't forget you know, Eastern Ukraine, because don't forget they had the Minsk Peace Accord and that didn't work, and Ukraine violated it. So I mean, one of Russia's objectives is to to protect the people of Eastern Ukraine and have that war end definitively and, and halt Ukrainian aggression in you know, uh, so that you know if Russia achieves that. Uh, then they will have achieved their war aim, and they will have emerged much stronger, and that they will be stronger economically uh, if they can, you know, link to Crimea uh, and some of those eastern regions to Russia. Uh, that could be, you know, mutually beneficial to both the Russian economy and eastern Ukraine you know, and those regions' economies. Uh, so, and then Russia has, you know, been developing their uh, trading relations with. With China, they're developing greater self-sufficiency. Uh, so it's possible Russia could emerge much stronger from this conflict in the end, even in the face of uh, sanctions and growing you know, hostility from the West, uh, which might appear kind of weakened if Russia achieves its end. So we'll see. We'll see if that calculation plays out for Russia. It's still unclear. Uh, you know, If you read the the media here, is claiming Russia's bogged down the quagmire and they see this, you know, maybe another Afghanistan. I think that's the the goal really to induce another Afghanistan that will really ravage Russia and weaken it. But I'm not sure if if Ukraine will end up being the same
1: as Afghanistan. Very unlikely. Let me ask you an economic question, too. You know, the the Russians, in order to to try to keep their economy afloat, have partnered with the Chinese. Uh, there's been talk about a, a yuan-based uh, uh, international uh, currency exchange. Uh, the Saudis are negotiating with the Chinese to to sell oil in yuan rather than in dollars, which is the way it's always been done. Is this a way for the Russians to actually come out ahead at the end of this, meaning to sort of break up the the monopoly? that the dollar has on international uh, trade transactions?
2: Yes, I think that was their goal all along. And in some ways, perhaps, you know, the, the sanctions, they may almost welcome it because it can expedite this process. Uh, and it really, you know, further necessitates moving away from the American dollar and fortifying their trading relation with China uh, and moving forward on, on these alternative currencies and you know alternative power block. And there are numbers of countries, yeah, that uh, have aligned with Russia uh, in this conflict or have been uh, reluctant to go along with uh, the West policy. So uh, we may be seeing a major geopolitical power shift, and this war is a kind of turning point. And another way, you know, as far as this geopolitical shift, I mean— Russia wasn't bold. I mean, obviously, they, they felt confidence that they could achieve their war aims in Ukraine, and they, they wouldn't allow themselves to be bullied any longer by the United States uh, and West, which had long interfered in Ukraine. Uh, so uh, the fact that they acted, the very fact that they acted, uh, may exemplify uh, Russia's confidence uh, of this new uh, multipolar world order, which uh, themselves and China will be at the center.
1: One last question. Uh, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin said yesterday that he can see this conflict lasting for many months. A day earlier in testimony before um, the uh, the Senate Armed Services Committee, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley, said he could see this war lasting for years. Would you agree with those assessments, months or even years? yeah
2: well definitely months i i don't know years uh yeah according to the russian you know military reports uh you know russia will uh achieve its objectives um you know not in years but in a span of months so i mean it's hard for me to predict uh, i don't know exactly uh the situation on the ground i know that's what the you know us policymakers want they want another afghanistan uh, I think, you know, certain they want to bleed the Russians. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think certainly, you know, uh, you know, there is resistance. I mean, Western Ukraine, there are, uh, you know, certain cities, Lviv, even Kiev, where there is, you know, um, yeah, either mixed views or, or strong hostility towards the Russians. I think people would stand up and fight There's an, you an know, influx of foreign fighters. I mean, sure. they're saying that. I mean, they're making it so the more weaponry they pour in. And the more they allow foreign fighters to to come in, that's going to prolong the conflict, uh, which is what they want. So uh, that that would be unfortunate if this goes on indefinitely. I mean, the the Ukrainian people have already suffered tremendously. And sadly, it's clear that the U.S. leaders uh, have no regard for the Ukrainians. As much as uh, they want to you know, show tears right. for them and, and sympathy, yeah. they have That's no regard point. for them because they want to prolong this war. They're pouring in the weaponry. They're blocking a settlement. I and mean, even Zelensky has agreed to a neutral Ukraine. Yeah. But the U.S. is not supporting the, the peace talks at this time. And they're pouring this weaponry and, and mercenaries that will prolong the war and the suffering of the Ukrainian people. Uh, It's a a complete hypocrisy and a misnomer that they care about the the Ukrainian uh, suffering, which they don't.
1: We will leave it there. That was the voice of Dr. Jeremy Kuzmarov. He's the managing editor of Covert Action magazine and the author of four books on U.S. foreign policy, including Obama's Unending Wars and The Russians Are Coming Again. Stay tuned to Political Misfits. We're going to take a short break and come right back.
0: Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou talking about uh, some updates, possible changes to U.S. energy policy and uh, what stakeholders are are hoping to uh, both be heard a little bit more and to benefit a little bit more from some of these processes. That is if these proposed changes go through. The Wall Street Journal earlier this week reported on an agreement reached after years of fighting and negotiation to amend the Federal Power Act and change the way hydropower plants are licensed. Uh, the deal would grant approvals to add hydroelectric power to some existing dams in as little as two years. It would speed the approval of off-river pump storage projects, uh, which store surplus energy uh, as quickly as three years. and another component would give tribes, tribal governments, instead of the Department of the Interior, authority on the conditions put on permits for things like the protection protection of tribal cultural resources or fish resources and fish passage. And so what is interesting to me is that this deal uh, has among its supporters the National Hydropower Association, which wants hydropower, uh, American Rivers, wants to protect rivers, the Skokomish tribe, and the Upper Skagit Indian Tribe, and the Union of Concerned Scientists, right? So this sounds like a lot of uh, different interesting points of view, having finally agreed on this, uh, you know, a a final kind of collaborative document here. Uh, Joining us to get into how we got here and what this document means is Darren Thompson. He's a reporter for Native News Online and Unicorn Riot. Darren, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. So let's talk. I mean, I I have to say this agreement between these uh, different bodies and organizations has to be approved by Congress to actually, you know, uh, take any effect. But I wondered if you could talk to us about how we got here and what this deal would mean.
3: Well, we've got here, of course, through political collaborations, as well as more entities listening to stakeholders in particular local communities, such as the Pacific Northwest, Uh, when you work with tribes in that particular area, they are the data keepers of much of their resources, uh, including, quote-unquote, natural resources, as well as other resources that that they have and and monitor, including things like water quality, things like uh, the longevity of various species that might live or migrate to these locations that, that tribes are concerned about. And so what this eventually means is that tribes have the ability to govern themselves as well as, in the end, to make decisions that power their communities, that power the entities that allow these tribal governments, which are often very rural, especially in these areas, uh, to to make decisions that affect them uh, in their own community, in their own time, in ways that reflect values that come from this this region and and these communities as
0: well. And I want to ask, you know, this story, and again, you know, Congress will have to take action in order for this to to bear any fruit. But it does fit a theme that we have talked about on the show pretty often, which is one that even renewable resource generation will create displacement to some degree, right? It will involve some degree of environmental destruction and it it has the potential to change ways of life. And historically... Native people are the ones on this continent who have seen their lands and their rights uh, trampled and, and used in ways that they've opposed to create energy of one kind or another. Uh, I think it's important to remember that, but it's also important to highlight that it it would be really naive to imagine that Native governments simply just blanket oppose any energy project or energy generation across the board, right? I think it has been it can be sometimes be misunderstood that actually these governments just want to be equal partners and to be equal, co- equally compensated for their contributions and their sacrifices and to have some say in what projects go forward and which ones don't. And I, I wanted to get your thoughts on on that.
3: Yes. And that's a really important issue to, to discuss. And in Congress right now, we have the Department of Natural Resources, which just last week reported that a bill called the Respect Act, which was introduced several times by the chair from Arizona, the RESPECT Act essentially codifies the federal government's ability and requirement to consult with all federally recognized tribes. This is the first time in United States history that a bill like this has had full committee markup, which means that the committee is ready to open it and debate it on the House floor. Unfortunately, at this point, there isn't a a Senate counterpart to this bill, but nonetheless, what this speaks to is the fact that we're we're seeing a shift, and it's been going on for a few years, where respecting tribal sovereignty is becoming um, more than words. It's actually showing it itself in, in a way of actions, for example, like a full committee markup. Or we have another administration that passed an executive order, which is not the same as, a, as an act, of course, passed in Congress, uh, and then sent to the president's desk for signing. But nonetheless, I think what we're seeing is a tremendous uptick of respect for tribal sovereignty. And as a result of that, what we're seeing and giving the opportunity for tribes to determine what happens on their land or what happens in their territories so that they can make decisions that, so they can participate in decisions that affect their ability to govern themselves.
0: Yeah. And I mean, I, I hope that that is true because I think there, there is sometimes a tendency in politics to just pay a lot of lip service to a topic and, and not necessarily enact. You know, not not necessarily make it more concrete. Uh, but i I would like to see that. And so I wonder, I know you you've kind of alluded to it uh, just now when you said, you know, an executive order is not the same as an act of Congress, but you know, f- for a wave of renewable energy generation to not repeat the mistakes of of fossil fuel generation, which is, you know generally to exploit the lands of of people who have already historically been so exploited, what what would have to happen when it comes to interacting with Native governments and Native lands? Like what what kind of uh, what kind of steps would you like to see proposed and followed to to make this sort of a potential new wave of energy generation, not make the mistakes of the old one?
3: Yeah. So work in the field indicates from tribal leaders that they want more than an email indication. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> consultation. Yeah, Um, We actually need to have face-to-face interactions so that we know what you're doing and what you're proposing to do and how we report this to our various delegates so that we can have this meaningful consultation that's more than just an email or lip service, right? So that is absolutely crucial, I believe, because with the shift in the auto industry, for example, switching from oil and gas to uh, using electric power, the we have a big lithium mine that is proposed, mm-hmm. the largest mine in, in the world in the northern part of Nevada. Mm-hmm. All of the tribes up there have, have opposed, both in writing and vocally, that they want some consultation of, of how this is going to be extracted. And so another component of that is the harvesting and mining of nickel, which absorbs the lithium. And there's a proposed nickel mine, which will be the largest in the country, in northern Minnesota, which requires a variety of steps. But Tesla has announced a partnership with uh, with a metal company called Talon Metals. And that particular uh, deal is worth $10 billion, and it doesn't even have uh, a permit yet. Yeah. Yeah mine. And so the tribes in this last year have opposed uh, any mines as well as the building and uh, of the Line 3 pipeline. And that was a very important issue where a lot of tribes have voiced that they weren't consulted with. And as a result of that, there's a lot of distrust uh, both within tribes and the federal government and tribes within the state government as well.
0: Yeah. And I mean, of course, when all you get is an email informing you that something is going to be done then the only response, if you are going to respond and oppose it, you know, can be protest. Whereas if, you know, there are collaborative processes to, you know, decide where some of these projects might be appropriate and where, you know, they simply are not. I'm not going to pretend that I think every every project should be allowed. But if there is a collaborative process, then you don't have this, you know, you don't you don't have to have people standing off, facing up against uh, water cannons. Uh, It's just it seems so obvious if you have a moral or ethical bone in your body. Uh, speaking of morality, I, I wanted to get your thoughts, Darren, on the apology offered by Pope Francis uh, for the Catholic Church's role in what Canada's Truth and Reconciliation Commission has termed a cultural genocide, enacted with the support of the residential school system that, of course, uh, the Catholic Church was so involved in. I, I, I The Pope said... For the deplorable conduct of those members of the Catholic Church, I ask for God's forgiveness, and I want to say with to you with all my heart, I am sorry. Uh, I join my brothers, the Catholic bishops, in asking your pardon. The Pope is addressing a delegation uh, from Canada who had gone there to, to seek the apology. I wonder what you think of the apology by itself. How important is it?
3: Well, it is historic because it is the first time that a leader, uh, particularly the Pope, has acknowledged as well as made an official apology to a delegation of boarding school slash residential school survivors. And I think from there, what in this country, what people are trying to do is to urge Senate and the House of Representatives to support the Truth and Healing Commission of U.S. Indian Boarding School Policies Act. Would be similar to what happened up in Canada, where the United States government will officially acknowledge, like the Pope did, that there were some atrocities that took place that resulted in a number of uh, very traumatic things that our communities are are still dealing with today, like uh, the missing and murdered Indigenous children who never made it home after they attended boarding school, which is um, being discovered an unmarked grave, which in any society, an unmarked grave is a crime. Mm-hmm. So I think it's very significant. I think that uh, there's going to be a lot of other discussions that are going to come from, from the apology on an official, on many official levels, both within government as well as within uh, religion and, and tribal, tribal communities.
0: Yeah, I mean, Canada... You know, Canada, I think, is uh, is painted in a very rosy light sometimes that, that I don't think it is earned. But it is far ahead of the United States in at least the process of acknowledging that these things happened, even if, uh, as we've highlighted on the show, you know, the Canadian government has really not followed through on the recommendations of that Truth and Reconciliation uh, Committee. Or I think we would have discovered some of these graves uh, far sooner. Right. I believe that was one of the recommendations of that. Uh, commission to say, like, hey, we, we need to, try, you know, follow up on these leads, follow up on these things that, uh, you know, have been that that are known in these communities but have never been sort of explored and documented. I wonder, you know, there have been calls for for reparations. Uh, and for uh, for for more to be done than simply apologize? W- what would you like to see the church doing if it really wanted to, you know, as as Pope Francis said elsewhere in that um, long apology, you know, the, he, he cop- talked about the, the ongoing scourge of colonization and genocide. What else could the church be doing?
3: Sure. So one of the big requests by many indigenous people are, are that the pope should revoke the papal bull from 1493, which was known to many as the Doctrine of Discovery, which led to the theft of many Indigenous lands throughout the world. The delegation also requested a number of things, including the Pope visiting Canada, which he is scheduled to do to apologize in person in Canada as well, well, it's to work with tribes and repatriating the artifacts that were collected and remain in archives at the Vatican Museums uh, over overseas.
1: I like that. It's
3: important, but there are definitely people are demanding some follow up. Like, OK, there's other things that we want to, to have acknowledged as well. And this is what we're laying out.
0: Yeah, yeah. I also saw I saw that you were recently writing about some. Uh, pretty outrageous comments made by the governor of Oklahoma about the supposed fallout from the McGirt versus Oklahoma decision of I think now two years ago when the Supreme Court for once looked at a treaty the U.S. government had signed with Native governments and said, yeah, you know what? You really do have to abide by this. Like, you guys have to figure this out. This is a real document. We're not going to ignore it like we have so many others. What What was the governor saying? What What is he suggesting is happening in Oklahoma as a result of this decision?
3: What he is suggesting, Governor Kevin Stitt, is that the state of Oklahoma has lost its ability to prosecute people on indian land and what he omitted was that the state of oklahoma lost permission to prosecute members of these particular six tribes that live in oklahoma as well as other tribes but it's predominantly those six tribes and what this does is it places the the jurisdiction to prosecute crimes committed on indian lands by either the tribes or the federal government and the federal government picks up major crimes like the horrific crimes like kidnapping sexual abuse, uh, aggravated assault, murder, uh, things of a very heinous nature would be picked up by the federal government. So what he's implying is that it's hard to tell for the police in the eastern part of the state of Oklahoma of who's an Indian and who's not an Indian. When in reality, what he's doing is he's undermining the relationships that each of these sovereign tribes have created and established with these various law enforcement agencies who are acting on behalf of partners who are still able to police. And what this does is it creates a base of people who are particularly don't, don't care about tribal sovereignty because this year is an election year for the current governor. And so a lot of tribes have been speaking out against this. I met this morning with the principal chief of the Cherokee Nation. I'm actually in Tahlequah, Oklahoma. I speak with you about this, doing some research on the McGirt decision, as well as other as, as other things. And that decision is going to be argued later on this month uh, in Washington, D.C. And I actually will be on the ground reporting from D.C. when that goes on as well. I will have to. Can I interrupt here, Please. too?
1: You know, getting back to this governor of of, uh, Oklahoma, I was in Oklahoma a few months ago, and and this guy's very popular, it seems. But is it, did he just never read about the history of the state? I mean, is it a revelation to him, really, that that Native Americans have sovereign rights to what happens on their own land?
3: That is a difficult question to answer, considering that, The governor is actually an uh, an enrolled citizen of the chair of Oklahoma. Right,
1: he sure is.
3: And so what he's doing is he is basically, in the words of of some of our followers, not respecting tribal sovereignty, making an argument about it in in a a tremendous—he's been a tremendous opponent of the McGirt decision, and that is the fact that Oklahoma— loses, again, its jurisdiction in some parts of Oklahoma. But what they're not acknowledging is the fact that these agreements predate the founding of the state of Oklahoma. Right. It's a really black and white issue.
0: Yeah. And he also, I mean, it's, it looks like a SOP to uh, refund the police movements it, and totally. law enforcement. He's basically, I mean, he was also kind of suggesting, oh, police can't tell on-site who's a tribal member and who's not, so they're just going to let crimes go uh, unpunished. They're not going to bother catching people so so they don't get in trouble, which is just an idiotic assertion.
3: Yeah, and that's completely, that's a falsehood. And that is one of the things people are saying is that he's making it seem like there's lawlessness in Oklahoma, and that's not necessarily the case. And last week, President Biden submitted his fiscal year 2023, Uh, budget, which is an overall governmental approach. And part of the citation is that the Department of Justice is going to increase funding for uh, policing in eastern Oklahoma, particularly related to the McGirt decision. So on one hand, we have the president acknowledging that the McGirt decision is legal and standing, and whereas you have the governor of the territory, the state of Oklahoma, uh, opposing it. So- It's it's uh, it's an interesting thing to see and to, and to witness, but uh, law is the law.
0: Yeah. Hey, Darren, we're going to have to let you go on that. That was Darren Thompson. We always appreciate his time. You can find his work at Native News Online, and you can also find his work at Unicorn Riot and his website at net. Darren, thanks so much for joining us. We're going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits. We're live in D.C. We're on Radio Sputnik. We'll be right back.
1: Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with my co host, Michelle Witte. Special counsel John Durham alleges in a new filing that the 2016 Hillary Clinton campaign, its lawyer, and a tech executive all took part in what he calls a joint venture to gather and spread dirt about the Trump campaign. The claim was made in a 48 page filing in advance of attorney Michael Sussman's trial on a charge of lying to the FBI. The case is based on a text message that Sussman sent to then-FBI General Counsel James Baker saying, quote, Jim, it's Michael Sussman. I have something time-sensitive and sensitive I need to discuss. Do you have availability for a short meeting tomorrow? I'm coming on my own, not on behalf of a client or company. I want to help the Bureau. Thanks, Unquote. In fact, Sussman was acting specifically at the request of the Clinton campaign. Meanwhile, Republican Senators Chuck Grassley and Ron Johnson continued to rail against Hunter Biden on the floor of the Senate. The two called for an investigation of Biden and said they would undertake one if the Republicans regained control of the body. And in big news reported only by the New York Post, word has leaked out of the Hunter Biden grand jury That one of the witnesses, Biden's business associate, James Gilliar, was asked what he meant when he wrote in an email regarding the distribution of equity in a company created in a joint venture with China Energy Company, quote, 20 held by H for the big guy, question mark, unquote. The media have speculated that it means 10% or 20% of the company held by Hunter Biden for Joe Biden. We do not know what Gilliard's response was. That didn't leak out. We're joined by Jim Cavanaugh, editor of thepolemicist.net. Welcome back, Jim. Hi, thanks Hi. for having me. So much interesting stuff going on. I, I want to start with this new filing by uh, John Durham. It's 48 pages long. And as someone who has some personal experience with these kinds of things, Michael Sussman, the Perkins Coy attorney who was working for the Clinton campaign, looks like dead meat to me. He either told the truth to the FBI or he told a lie, and his lie was in writing, which you're never, ever, ever supposed to do. Don't put a lie in writing, for heaven's sake. You should have plausible deniability if you're going to tell a lie. This looks pretty clear to me. What are your thoughts?
4: Well, yeah, the the evidence that I see here, and that's been (laughs) brought out, looks pretty clear. I mean, if he wrote a memo saying, uh, I'm not uh, doing this on behalf of anybody else, and clearly, he was. Then he was billing the Clinton campaign, and he also, I believe, said in in testimony that he was working on behalf of uh, of clients. At right. least, right? Uh, right. So, so he's contradicting himself, and he's gotten you know, it's out in the public, as you say. You don't know, put this stuff in writing. That's the uh, you know the, the, the criminal behavior one hundred and one. Uh, so <laughs> legal behavior one hundred and one, lawyering one hundred and one. So uh um, you know, I think you look, Durham has been methodically pursuing this. Once the Republicans take control of of the, of the committees, this is going to become more impossible f- for uh, the mainstream media to avoid. And uh, I think that
1: certainly suspends on the hook.: Yeah. I think so very much. You know, this reminds me of uh, what was the governor of New York, uh, the guy that got caught with prostitutes and then went to CNN. He had to resign. What was his name? He had been the attorney general. Attorney general. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Elliot Spitzer. Elliot Spitzer. Thank Spitzer, you. Spitzer. Yeah. He famously said this. I actually found the quote, even if I didn't find his name attached to it. Never talk when you can nod and never put anything in an email. And it's so true. Don't put it in an email or a text message. You're going to just do yourself in. Well, the sentencing guideline for a crime like what Sussman is uh, accused of doing is probation. It it calls for a maximum of zero to six months in prison. And for a first-timer like Sussman, it would be uh, probation. I don't think that's the issue, though. I think the issue is that it was clear that the Clinton campaign was conspiring with others to paint Donald Trump as a Russian stooge. And that accusation stuck. Most of the Democrats I know, most of the mainstream Democrats I know, uh, believe that there was collusion between Trump and the Russian government. They call him a Russian spy, a Russian dupe, a Russian stooge. Um, Can this ever be overcome? Can it ever be corrected? Even though... This Russia Gate uh, thing has been proven to be false. People still believe it. How's it fixed?
4: Yeah, I, I don't see a fix for this. <laughs> I think in, in a lot of people's mind, it's never going to change. Russia Gate still lives, <laughs> and and it's being intensified because of the Ukraine situation. Yeah. So uh, you know, now that people are invested in it even more, I mean, it's so bizarre that they that they've. Uh, gotten in, uh, into this line of thought that Trump somehow was in bed with Putin. And, you know, I would seen tweets today. It's a good thing Trump isn't president because he would have been on the other side. I mean, Trump gave more weapons to Ukraine than anybody. The whole the whole uh, impeachment thing was based on Ukraine. So yeah. I think that, you know, this is now going to be even more uh, intensely uh, held by people that, you know, this is all uh, Trump is part of the bad guys who Include Vladimir Putin, of course, and you know this was this was set up starting the campaign with the with the with the Clinton campaign, starting Russia Gate, went through Trump's presidency with the impeachment, and is still going on. And I don't think you know because you're not going to change radically the media atmosphere in the country, which just has uh, uh, feeds this.
1: Yeah, yeah, I would agree. Is there going to be any lasting damage for the Democrats on this? Does anybody really care? I mean, I care. You care. Michelle, of course. Of but course. Uh, but otherwise, mainstream Democrats, DNC people, they just don't seem to care that the Clinton people cheated Bernie Sanders out of a out of a shot at the nomination, for example. I can't imagine that they would care about Donald Trump being smeared as a Russian agent. Yeah, no, I of course they don't care.
4: Uh, uh, a, first of all, they don't care. Democrat the Regular Democratic constituency, liberal constituency doesn't care. I mean, uh, I care because of the general issues, not because yeah. I care about Donald Trump, sure. but because of I, I'm I, it's way. not a good idea for the for the intelligence apparatus to be trying to take down a president or or interfering in the American electoral process, trying to name the president. Uh, so, a they don't care. B there has already been damage to the Democrats about this. You know, I mean, they're going to lose, and you know the reason why things like January 6 happened. It was that great. I forget who it was who put out an article that Glenn Greenwald amplified about the way these people, the people who Trump supporters think, and it's that Trump was cheated, yeah, and that they saw the FBI and the and the you know agencies they trust, they trusted yes. being used by the Democrats. So the Democrats have already had a, by this and by many other things, but definitely by this have already paid a, a, a hell of a political price for it. And they're going to continue to do that. And I don't think they, the Democratic leadership cares about that. They're willing to pay that
1: price rather than own up to what they've done. I would agree. Let's turn to Hunter Biden. Uh, things just seem to get worse and worse for this guy, at least if you pay attention to media leaks. Joe Biden said last week that he doesn't believe that Hunter Biden committed a crime. But even a simple statement like that from a sitting president is interfering with the legal process. You're not supposed to make any statement, any comment at all in an ongoing investigation. It's an ongoing case. Can you see Joe Biden eventually intervening for his son? After all, Donald Trump set a precedent for that by pardoning his friends and Jared Kushner's dad in the event that that, uh, Hunter starts to circle the drain. Can you imagine Joe Biden pardoning him?
4: course I could yeah sure it's as you say standard operating procedure you know we've had this so much of what's happened politically in the past I don't know 40 years 30 years has been po- politics via litigation and then people get uh get found guilty of something or and they're pardoned or they're pardoned preemptively by the president so I think that would be quite possible and I'd expect it to happen in one way or another the more interesting thing is this business of the you know what's going to the really explosive thing is what's going to come of. Uh, well, there's two things. First of all, the Hunter Biden stuff about you know these emails and this communication about these bio labs, the biological research right. labs in Ukraine, really a lot of stuff there that's very bizarre. And I, I, I'm surprised at how much again he put on paper about you know how he's. Going to invest in these biological research labs, like you know, like Hunter Biden is not only the expert in gas prices and not only a great artist, but he's also apparently a great biological research guy. So you know that was very strange. And but the big explosive thing, whatever it is, is this business of this, you know, who who's the big guy who's for whom they're holding back ten or twenty percent, and whether that's Joe Biden or not. And I mean, I hate the fact this is like a a bad. Episode of a of a a, a a new series where they're telling you, oh, we asked the question, but we're not going to give you the answer. Right, <laughs> right. Know, somebody, so it's, frustrating. It's significant that the question was asked, and I, I've been wondering who was going to ask that question, and if it's being asked in a legal context by someone who's himself under th- some kind of threat of conviction or prosecution, then it's very interesting to know what the answer is, and uh, we'll see where that goes. But you know, the whole Hunter Biden mess is much worse than it seemed to be, you know, even in 2020. And uh, it's getting more complicated as it go along.
1: I, I have to agree. You know, we're we're hearing leaks, too, from from the investigation itself, saying that Hunter Biden, if he's going to be charged with anything, is going to be tar- charged with income tax evasion, of all things. This was the first time I heard this. This was a week ago. But income tax evasion is a serious federal crime. I, I remember, you know, when I was in prison after – after uh, blowing the whistle on the CIA's torture program, being surprised at the number of people in prison for income tax evasion, and some of them with like you know decades long sentences. I, I was uh, I worked in the chapel with a, a guy who was a tax attorney who had graduated from Harvard, and he came up with what he thought was this very innovative um, uh, way to shelter his clients from taxes. It turns out that that the court of appeals disagreed. And uh, he ended up getting 18 years in prison. So, you know, when, when somebody says, oh, in addition to all this other stuff, Hunter Biden's being investigated for income tax evasion. If I were Hunter Biden, I would be really worried right now. You know, I, I had forgotten, too, that Hunter Biden is not just the, the crackhead that we see in these photographs, you know, passed out with a crack pipe hanging out of his mouth. This guy graduated from Yale Law and got his bachelor's degree from Georgetown. Right. And his father was a was a senator for decades and vice president of the United States. This guy had everything handed to him and uh, and he finds himself in trouble like this. It's mystifying for me. So I wanted to ask you about this grand jury. It's very, very rare for there to be any leak out of a grand jury. It's very rare for somebody to even know that a grand jury is looking at him because of the nature of this case. Of course, we know that that there is a grand jury looking at Hunter Biden. But this New York Post article raises um, some issues. It states definitively that one of the witnesses was asked about Joe Biden and the 10% for the big guy. Should Joe Biden be worried about this? What could it actually mean for him?
4: Well, that would be very explosive. Yeah. I mean, if, if
1: someone were to testify, yes,
4: if this guy, Gilliard, what was his name? Yeah, were to test- were to say, if The answer to the question, which the Post didn't give us, although... They must know it. <laughs> I mean, how could they get the question without having gotten they the must. answer? I served on a grand, I served on a Manhattan grand jury, so I, I know that you know the, the rules of confidentiality are very strict. But you know, if they if they were to, they have a leak, they got the leak, and they have the answer to that question. So if the if this guy answers that question, yes, that was meant. We we're holding back ten percent for Joe Biden. <laughs> I mean, wow, that's that's something that you can't. Get away with, get get away with, or get yeah. away from. You know that's nobody's going to hide that. That comes out in, in in sworn testimony, right? So, but it would have to get out of the grand jury because grand jury testimony, you you won't find it uh, even, unless someone is brought to charges are brought against the guy. You know what I mean? Uh, so uh, it, it is a, a a very dangerous situation for Biden. Then I think Biden is in a situation. I, I got to think this feeds into the notion that we got to get rid of Biden. We got to uh, replace Biden somehow. You know, he's going around making big gaffes all the time yeah. and uh, making statements and this kind of all thing. If time. this is lurking in the background, it's going to be even more of an impetus for the Democratic Party to try and find a replacement. I don't know who the hell that would be. <clears throat> but
1: agree on both. Yeah, counts. this is this is that's a very important point And it is the most important point. What's the answer to that question? Hey, Twitter announced yesterday that it would no longer recommend or amplify any tweets that come from a Russian government account. And this affects about 300 different uh, Russian government accounts on Twitter. Twitter said that for the sake of the free flow of information, which is ironic, uh, it would stop amplifying any information from a source that's involved in interstate armed conflict. So on the surface of things, it seems that, yeah, is isn't that funny? Yes. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Okay. Go
1: on. <laughs> it seems like, at least on Twitter, this is the end of the line for RT and uh, and Sputnik. And then on top of that, we just learned that, that Scott Ritter's been thrown off of Twitter. Scott's been pretty outspoken. He's been pretty outspoken in his analysis on the Russia-Ukraine uh, situation. But I wanted to get your take on all this.
4: Oh, that's terrible, Scott Ritter. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean... Look, uh, it was not just about – it's interesting because they put another condition on it. It wasn't just states that are involved in armed conflict, but it was, right. it was states that had put some kind of – any kind of restriction on the open internet, OK? So if a state has in any way in their minds in their rendering restricted access to internet – and is involved in armed conflict. That's the way that's how they're gonna get away with not right. Uh, with, with not uh, suppressing American or Ukrainian. They say, Oh, America, Ukraine lays allows free ins, free access right. to the internet in general. Right. You know, even though you know we can argue whether that's true or not. And it's not, but so it's very true. They also did this thing. We're not gonna allow any depictions of of. P.O.W. content that's shared with abusive intent, such as insults, calls for retaliation, mocking, taking pleasure in the suffering of P.O.W.'s. That's all fine and good, again. But the reason they're doing that is because there have been scores of videos of captured Russia. 1st of all, of Ukrainian soldiers who killed Russian soldiers calling their wives on the soldiers' phone— mocking the wife and saying, we just killed your husband, calling with, or a captured Russian soldier, calling with the captured Russian soldier his girlfriend and saying, oh, you better get another boyfriend because we're going to castrate this guy. So that's been, there's there's been all of that content that's been mainly Ukrainian soldiers, not only insulting and mocking, but in the worst possible ways, abusing the prisoners of war. So what they're doing is, you know, they're going to, uh, again, selectively Eliminate any possibility of seeing something that disrupts the narrative of, you know, what they call the the, the informed versus misinformed narrative, uh, and it's part and parcel of the same. We'll see how long it takes for them just to completely by by not amplifying. I'm not quite sure what that means. They keep saying that they're not going to put it on their homepage, not going to put it on your timeline. I'm not. Will it be allowed to be shown at all? But clearly the uh, the the momentum here is this is wartime censorship in the United States. Uh, and that's the situation we're in.
5: The
0: effort is to, you know, not to uh, prevent the picture of the war from being distorted, but to actively distort it in real time, because a real you know, I think a, re- a real in real time picture of this war would include, you know, I'm sure when we are sorting through uh, the aftermath, you will find absolutely true instances of Russian soldiers committing crimes because I don't know what army doesn't commit war crimes. You know, they are invading army. There are civilians in their way. Civilians are absolutely dying. And absolutely, I think you will find instances of of Russian prisoners of war being mistreated, perhaps being maimed and mutilated. The, The real picture of the war would show all of this. And instead, there is an effort to simply distort it and present only one side. And it's sort of when you when you say, hey, look, there there, there is a bigger picture here. You're, you're presented as being sort of sympathizing with one side or the other and sympathizing with a particular ideology instead of just going, look, all we are trying to do is say you can't it, it, it is harmful to create out of whole cloth a story of a conflict that is so important.
4: Oh, absolutely. The the war is hell, whether it's justified or not, whether it's legal or not, it's hell. And civilians are going to be killed. atrocities are going to be committed. Skepticism is warranted on all sides. But what we have in the United States now is a press and a political, uh, politicians and press that are, that will take whatever comes out of Kiev and present it as fact that has to be believed. And present all the images that support it, all the you know gruesome images that support it. Well, on the other side, they'll just ignore it. They'll really you will never see it, and that's a problem that Americans and nobody should be you know uh, should be satisfied with. We have no reason. Certainly, there is absolutely no reason to believe the United States government by default about anything. They've lied about wars we know for decades. Be in this conflict. We know that the Ukrainian government has lied, has put out stories about ghost fighters and about Snake Island uh, martyrs, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, don't presume that anybody's telling you the truth. But we have a situation in which the presumption of truth lies by default and automatically and is intent. just amplified as much as possible uh, the presumption of truth on, beh- on the part of the Kiev regime, and the presumption of venality and uh, lies on the part of Russia is taken as a, as a given. And that's a very dangerous situation. And yeah. it is part of the fact that the United States has put itself into this war on a side, and that is being reflected in, in, the, in, the, in the media and the ideological apparatus as if we were in a war situation.
1: Jim, you wrote a few weeks ago at the polemicist that we should be wary of reports of civilian casualties coming uh, from Ukraine. Uh, Those reports have reached a fever pitch over the last couple of days. And uh, I I mentioned earlier in the show yesterday on on CNN and MSNBC and Fox, they were just gruesome, absolutely grisly. What uh, what was being reported as having been done to Ukrainian civilians? Why should we be wary of these reports? Because you should be
4: wary of reports that come from one side or or, or its allies. You know, you're in a war situation, as Michelle said, and as I said, it's hell. There are going to be things, there are going to be civilians that are killed, innocent civilians, there are going to be events that occur that can be legitimately called atrocities. And it's inevitable that this will happen on both sides. You have to be able to see the conflict and 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 be able to judge for yourself, and have sources of information from which you, I have seen, and you know they're out there, scores, hundreds of vicious atrocities by by the Ukrainian forces that you never see on in, in the Western press and CNN or or the New York Times. What happened in Bucha? Whoever did it, whatever it is, it's an atrocity. If it's a false flag, it's an atrocity. The Russians kill those people; it's an atrocity that needs to be investigated. People need to be able to have access to the information. We in the United States should not be consider ourselves part of this fight in the sense, you know, I, I mean, I don't. if you want to do that, then you, then you do that. But if the United States government and the media apparatus as a whole decides we are in a war and we're on this side and we're going to have what's essentially wartime propaganda, you know, if you're in a war, you have wartime propaganda. That's sure. But, you know, that's we should resist that because that's going to lead us into a a shooting war very
1: easily. I want to switch just for the last couple of minutes that we have with you to uh, some domestic politics. I'm having a lot of fun following um, the special election that's going to be taking place in Atlanta. I'm sorry, in Alaska for uh, a seat in the House of Representatives. Representative Don Young, He'd been in, in the Congress for 49 years. He died a couple of weeks ago. And so far, 51 people have announced that they are running in the Republican primary. One of those people is, uh, is uh, Sarah Palin. <laughs> Her name escaped me for a second. You. Sarah Palin, according to uh, Politico today, has a 31% approval rating. Now, she was governor of Alaska for two years, and she quit so that she could run for vice president with John McCain back in 2008. She says that she gave very serious consideration to running for president in 2012 and again in 2016. She gave serious consideration to running for the Senate from Alaska in 2020 and just now decided she wants to be a junior member of the House of Representatives. So uh, she announced her candidacy for that. The problem is that, She has 50 other people running against her so far, and she has only a 31% approval rating. Apparently, after all these years, people are still angry that she resigned as governor after only two years and just abandoned them to become a reality TV star. She was on The Masked Singer. She was on Dancing with the Stars. She's a talking head on Fox, and people resent that. Still, because she has universal name recognition, uh she's got to be viewed as a front runner. Give me your thoughts if you don't mind on Sarah Palin and I know this might be something of an obscure political race, but i'd I'd love to hear what you think about uh this open house seat. Yeah, gee, thanks
4: <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, of course, if there are fifty one people running, she's a favorite because she's. <laughs> She's going to be, she's going to be one of the top uh, name recognition people. She's going to, she, I mean, she's, who else do you,
1: can you name another one of those 50? Not a people? single one. <laughs> yeah, so. I can't name, and I follow these things and I can't name a single one of the other 50 who are running. Sure.
4: I mean, you know, this is the point we have a political, a political apology in which uh, celebrities, Whatever they're celebrities for, whether they're the mass for being the mass thing or the apprentice, have a political uh, traction. They get political traction yeah. from it.
1: Yeah, they it's do.
4: nuts, but this is the farcical native, nature of American politics. So I don't know what's going to happen with that. Yeah, there's always a certain level. There's only there's always a certain uh, segment of the population of a state that resents it when a governor uh, walks away because they're trying to get a higher higher office. So that's right. going to be there, too. But I think- you know, all of it will be forgotten in terms of the a. She starts with the, she starts ahead of the pack, definitely. I would say, and you know, let's see what the what kind of ad campaign she runs and what kind of public relations campaign she runs. I mean, you know, I, 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 she's probably been a lot more present in in Alaskan politics over the past six years than she has been to me personally or in national politics. But yeah, her name
1: recognition, her celebrity status, makes it makes her the favorite. I think you're right. And to tell you the truth, I didn't realize she lived in Alaska. I know. Does she still live in Alaska? I I, I don't know. I know she bought a house in Arizona. I don't know. Well, we'll watch that race. Jim Cavanaugh, thanks for joining us. Jim is the editor of thepolemicist.net. Check that out. You're listening to Political Misfits. We're going to take a short break and come right back with our next guest. So hang on.
0: back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou talking now about immigration to the United States, the way it's being tied to COVID testing and treatment funding. We're yep. also going to talk about wild new uh, abortion restrictions that might be coming to Oklahoma and uh, why they might not be shut down as quickly as they have in the past joining us for all of that is Sarah Dady. She's an immigration attorney and a former Democratic congressional candidate for Illinois 16 District 16. Sarah, thanks so much for joining us. Hi Michelle, hi John.
5: Thanks for having me on today. Welcome back.
0: So we were going to just, you know, be talking about Title 42 and immigration, but now that is weirdly tied to COVID-19 funding and so there are going to be a lot of interconnecting political threads here. Um, but to start with immigration, You know, the the Biden administration, after defending its right to maintain the Trump era Title 42 policy, which which used the pandemic public health emergency to largely block uh, immigration to the United States. The administration has announced its intention to lift those restrictions. And now, like clockwork, it is being sued by a handful of Republican led states. And so I wonder, you know. Without adding in the COVID funding wrinkle for the moment, uh, how difficult you think it is going to be for the administration to follow through with its plan? And also, what needs to be put in place to prevent chaos at the border when these restrictions are lifted? Well, that's a lot to
5: unpack, Michelle. Mm -hmm. But let's start with the fact that one of the lead state plaintiffs is Missouri, which is a landlocked state, not even a border state. So is this really about border security? No. Right. It's never about border security. Now, it's not surprising that the Biden administration or any uh, presidential administration would want to defend um, the ability to decide who can come in and out of the United States. Like Title 42 does, which, you know, says the CDC gets to say. Um, whether or not people should come in or not during a pandemic. And the CDC said it's best not to let lots of people in. So, of course, the Biden administration ran with that. But really, what Title 42 has been used as, as de facto immigration reform, is we're not going to let people in. We're not going to let them apply for asylum, which is also a law. But not just people in general. Specific people, people that for whatever reason are unpopular in the United States, and that's brown people from Central America. Um, A big problem came in with the Biden administration because we let in all the Afghans last August, right? We flew them in, there was no Title 42 prohibition on their entry. And now, We have a whole bunch of Ukrainians making their way to Mexico to our southern border to come in. And they they were not being rejected under Title 42. So the racism of how Title 42 and, in fact, most border security is applied is very apparent to me and Mm -hmm. apparent to everyone.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and again, you know, these efforts to see how you can, you know, find a way to let some people in while continuing to block others are, uh, you know, shameful. But I, I want to also ask about now, in addition to these suits by Republican states, you have efforts to tie uh, COVID mitigation funding now to immigration, right? Because- Uh, This funding had been stripped from the spending bill that passed a couple of weeks ago. We learned earlier this week that the Senate had put together a 10 billion dollar package. And now just yesterday, Senate Minority Leader has said this standalone covid funding package won't come to a vote without amendments on immigration. And he specifically mentioned Title 42. And so now I wonder, you know, how serious is McConnell? Is he going to be able to stand up and say, hey, you're trying on one hand to tell us the pandemic's over and we should resume, quote unquote, normal immigration. And on the other hand, you want this funding. Sarah, you and I, I can see that those two things are not in conflict. Uh, But I wonder, you know, just how much trouble McConnell and the um, Republicans in Congress can cause with this.
5: Well, I mean, McConnell's had probably about 20 opportunities to vote on comprehensive immigration reform over the last 21 years. Um, they're not serious about it. Um, I don't think they want to pass the COVID um, relief spending bill. And they're using Im- immigrants as an excuse because yeah. it's always popular, one of the most hated groups in America, right? Because we, when we think about immigrants, we're not thinking about the Ukrainians um, or the European immigrants who are here. They are always, always talking about brown people. Yeah. So it's purely political, but this is part and parcel of what the Republican Party has done for the last two decades: is cut off our nose to spite our face. We need immigrants. We need immigrants coming in every year. We used to average about a million immigrants a year coming into the U.S. Last year in 2021, it was a fraction of that number. And not coincidentally, the U.S. experienced its slowest population growth um, in memory. Now we're on track in 2060 to have population decline in the United States because of falling birth rates and increasing mortality rates. So we are staring down the barrel of population loss, which is something we can't afford um, as the world's largest economy. We need to have people coming in. Um, But Republicans, notoriously short-sighted and narrow-minded, only care about each election. And they're going to make immigration, all these brown people, um, the issue. Prime elections. I mean, the other thing is, if immigration is
0: mostly illegal, then you have a bunch of uh, workers who are even even more vulnerable positions, even less able to advocate for their rights and to, you know, be, be able to get adequate pay, etc. So I think, you know, it's not so much efforts to stop immigration as to make sure that the people who do manage to come into this country are as, as vulnerable and exploitable as possible.
5: Around to the opinion that the Republicans just don't want any brown people coming in. Yeah, because. You know, after practicing immigration law for 17 years, um, the only reason to be against comprehensive immigration reform, which is the best way to control the border, by the way, Mm -hmm. people can apply for work visas outside the U.S. and have their background checks and pay their fees outside the U.S. before they come in. Mm -hmm. That is the best way to regulate the flow and migration of human beings across the border. It is not to put up walls, it's not to make the process harder, it's to make the process more accessible for an economic need we already have. You know, we have 200,000 people that we have kept out over the last three years, um, just trapped in very dangerous tent cities in Mexico, who all they want to do is be safe and work. Those are exactly the kind of people we need in the United States. Unfortunately, we have a Republican Party that can only see color.
0: I think that, that, I, I think that that's important to, to remember. Well, I wonder if you do, you do you think that the Democrats are going to have to be they're going to have to choose between COVID funding and Title 42? Maybe. <laughs>
5: um, I can't even venture to guess. We have so few reasonable people elected to Congress um, currently. Yeah. Yeah, true. I just, I can't even, I think any reasonable person, and I like to think the majority of Americans are reasonable, maybe not the majority of voting Americans, but these are two separate issues. If you want immigration reform, pass immigration reform. Don't get hung up on Title 42 because the CDC has already issued new guidance that we no longer need to prevent mass entries of people, right? So. Let's just pass immigration reform. Let's actually have a real worker visa program that meets our labor needs in the United States. Let people apply for it outside the U.S. instead of having this mass of human suffering at our border, because right now making an application for asylum is really the only way for people to come into the U.S. legally. And it shouldn't be that case because the vast majority of those people at our southern border aren't going to qualify for asylum anyway once they have their application heard. Asylum is very complicated and very specific.
0: I mean, it all sounds so reasonable, Sarah. I would like to see that as well. Uh, I also wanted to ask you before we get to this Oklahoma law on abortion, uh, Republicans, you know, we have the midterms coming up. Republicans have been sort of slow, slowly and steadily uh, trying to attract Latino voters. And now they are starting a a new campaign. And I wonder I wonder if you have any predictions, if if we see if we will see another uptick in Latino votes going to Republicans, uh, what what you would attribute it to?
5: Well, that's an interesting question. So uh, what I've observed, um, number one, you take Texas, which is a Republican state with a very high Latino population, they consistently vote Republican. So there are certainly a large number of Latinos are conservative in their viewpoints, And then that kind of changes based on, you know, how many generations their families have been living in the U.S. So there's a difference between a Latino voter whose mom got deported and a Latino voter whose mom was a U.S. citizen. His grandmother was a U.S. citizen. Great grandmother was a U.S. citizen. So there's a difference there. I can't. You can't assume just because someone's Latino that um, they're not going to support anti-immigrant candidates. Because immigration may not be their issue. Their issue may be they want public dollars to be spent on private school tuition because they want to send their kids to a private school and that's how they want their tax dollars spent. Um they may own businesses and so they think Republicans are all about um free enterprise and personal responsibility. Um so I don't think Democrats can count on the Latino vote they have to earn the Latino vote which I think they can do. It it can't just be all about immigration, but immigration is one of those issues which is you want to thrive the economy. We need more people coming in to work. Yeah, you business owner, you need more employees. We need to let these people in to work. And it's also our humanitarian responsibility. Um, you know, we we should not be inflicting human suffering for no good reason. And, and that's the other thing too. I think that Democrats have had a real hard time messaging around why, why are we keeping people out? Yeah. The sake of keeping them out? Yeah. What, what What's that purpose? Well, we need these people. They need to come in and we need to give them a right way to apply to come in because we need them.
0: Yeah, I think it's hard to find hard to find good message for something that you're not actually doing very well. You know, like they're very good proposals and, and good Promises made on campaigns, but not not a lot of follow through. I did also want to make sure we talked to you about this new law that passed the Oklahoma legislature. Uh, it passed a bill that would make providing an abortion in the state a felony, with exceptions made only in cases where the lives of the pregnant persons uh, are threatened. Oklahoma's governor had in the past committed to signing any anti-abortion bill that would arrive at his desk. Uh, the Oklahoma Supreme Court has consistently struck down similar challenges to reproductive rights as unconstitutional, which of course they are. But uh, one thing that is interesting about this one is its timing. It would if it is passed into law, it would go into effect 90 days after the state legislature adjourns, which is at the end of May. This is unless courts intervene. That is likely to be after the U.S. Supreme Court issues its decision in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health, uh, the Mississippi law that would ban abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy. That is widely expected to be allowed to stand by the court. And so it seems as though it could pave the way to many more state restrictions. And this Oklahoma proposal would not necessarily uh, be shot down by courts as quickly as it has been in the past. And so I, I wonder how worried uh, people should be at this law and potential new law in Oklahoma.
5: Well, I think we've just discovered the Republicans' answer to population decline, which apparently is not let immigrants in, but rather force American women to carry pregnancies to term. I, I think that the timing um, was absolutely planned. I, I think it's very smart. It's a very smart strategy, and I think that if the Supreme Court find that abortion is not a constitutional right, but rather an issue best left to the state. Um, we're going to see abortion outlawed in uh, over half of uh, U.S. states. It's going to happen. And,
0: you know, in big sort of contiguous blocks. Right. I mean, it's been noted, of course, that since Texas passed its insane abortion law, uh, Oklahoma has been a destination for people coming from Texas who want to get an abortion. Now, if Oklahoma is able to pass its own different kind of restriction, you know, that puts a greater burden on women who want an abortion to have to, you know, cover even greater uh geographical distances. And so this is one of the problems of, you know, saying, oh well, just let states decide, states can reflect the the will the, you know, the wills of their population, then you end up in a situation where, you know, you you have to cross half the country if you want to find a, a legal abortion.
5: That's exactly right. And I think that's what the strategy has been um for the red states and it's coming to fruition. One thing that's left out of every conversation about abortion um, is the the inconvenient fact that perfectly healthy women are dying in childbirth. We have more healthy American women dying in childbirth today than we did thirty years ago. We never talked about maternal mortality, which was one of the big reasons why abortion um, was legalized in the United States because of maternal mortality rates. And we are absolutely going to go back to those days because we never talk about how women die in childbirth.
0: Let's talk about maternal mortality rates, because it seems to me, I mean, I'm going to say I'm going to guess this is a combination of, you know, the failures of our healthcare system as it is, right? It's failure to to really take care of people, it's it's great expense, et cetera. And also, you know, it's the same same theme as with immigration. It's a, you know, there there are sort of economic components and also it's just racist, right? I mean, it's very well documented that uh black women's complaints, uh particularly during pregnancy and labor, are are ignored. Uh and so uh, they, uh, uh, their pain and their discomfort is ignored uh, to the point where uh, things get to a point that they can become fatal. Right where the white women are taken more seriously. So, talk to us a little bit about uh, maternal mortality in the United States and why it is we have such a huge problem.
5: Well, there are a lot. Well, there are a lot of reasons and some unknown reasons, but Black women die at much higher rates in childbirth than white women do. So, let's be clear about that. Black women definitely are being deprived of even the bad medical care that white women get. Black women get worse. But yes, there's inattention to um, women following, during and following childbirth. The focus tends to be on the child, on the baby. It's poor medical care. A lot of women don't have access to quality medical care, especially women that live in rural areas. There are plenty of towns where you have to drive one to two hours to get to a hospital that actually has a maternity ward. There an access to good prenatal care. And then, you know, childbirth is ugly and it's brutal on a woman's body. It is an ugly, brutal process, naturally. And so sometimes there's nothing medical science can do to save a mother's life. But the point is, is every pregnant woman is at risk of death in giving birth because doctors can't predict which mother's going to die and which one isn't. But we do know that women die every day in this country after giving birth, perfectly healthy women. So when we see laws like the Oklahoma saying, well, unless the mother's life is at risk, it's always a risk. So every mother's life is at risk in giving birth. You don't know who's going to win the death lottery. Yeah. Sarah,
0: let me ask you one more question before we let you go. You know, I mean, the the reason we have to talk about these state laws is because of who is filling state legislatures. And so I wonder, you know, what you think should be happening in in these campaigns, you know, before before the midterms in November to uh, potentially I mean, I think, you know. To truly protect reproductive rights in this country, you need a a federal level uh, protection, right? You need you need a Roe v. Wade, or we need a constitutional amendment. But if if you want, in the meantime, to protect them at the state level, what should what should uh, candidates who support reproductive rights be doing?
5: I think they need to be talking about maternal mortality. I think they need to talk about how women unpredictably die in childbirth. So if a woman has to risk her life to give birth, she needs to give consent to that. Mm. There is no job, there's no other place in civil society where any human being is forced under the law to risk their life for another, except for apparently women, pregnant women.
0: Yeah, that's a really interesting point, actually, (laughs) that any, you know, pregnancy is always a risk to the life of a woman and you shouldn't be forced to take that risk if you don't want to. Sarah Dady, thank you so much for,
5: oh, please finish. Go ahead. <laughs> we don't force anybody else to risk their life for another under any code of morality or legal precedent.
0: Yeah, it's outrageous. All right, Sarah, we're going to let you go. That was Sarah Dady, immigration attorney. Thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. You're listening to Political Misfits. Uh, we are on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. and we'll be right back. back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Whitty here with John Kiriakou, bringing you a few last headlines and one that caught my eye, John. And I don't I don't think this is unfair. This is from Axios reporting that the Israeli government is on the brink of collapse (laughs) after a key lawmaker quits their coalition. But why did she quit? Well, so this is the whip, right? So that's like, it's not like some no, this nobody is a big just like yeah, yeah. She, you know, this is, uh, she, she was the whip. She's uh, from a right-wing party in this coalition government. Uh, she said, this is her excuse, which people are saying is, is really just an excuse, um, but she said it, the Minister of Health, had sent a memo to government hospitals a few days ago instructing them to uphold a high court ruling that would allow people to bring leavened foods into hospitals on Passover. And she said, I couldn't allow this memo to harm Israel's Jewish identity, which, of course, is a huge aspect of right-wing politics yes. in Israel, maintaining, maintaining the religious and ethnic identity of the state, which to me just seems like a very backward and impossible obsession, right? Impossible to maintain uh, without violence and cruelty and discrimination, which I think is on, on full display. Uh, behind the scenes, however, you know, reports are saying this is not the real reason. It's just pressure to leave the coalition because it's not right wing enough. Enough. Yeah.
1: I, you know, I had a roommate in college uh, who had been in the process of rediscovering his Jewish identity. And he asked me as Passover approached one year if I would remove my leavened loaf of bread uh, from the apartment. Because he couldn't have anything leavened in the apartment during Passover. I said, yeah, absolutely. Sure. I was very happy to. So I, I I tossed it. I threw it out. I came home from class one day and he was eating a ham on matzah sandwich. I mean, hey. I flipped out. <laughs> people have,
0: people, look, we're all only human. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's one again, it's one thing to make requests in your own house. And it's another to set policy for an entire nation. That, that is exactly and, right. Yeah. Uh, another sort of story that caught my eye. This is from last night. Uh, the Arizona Supreme Court has issued its first execution warrant in wow. eight years. And uh, you have the attorney general of Arizona bragging about it on Twitter. Wow. Not saying cool. I th- I thought perhaps when I first opened this, when it caught my eye, I thought perhaps it was going to be someone going, oh, what a shame. We've had eight years without uh, state execution. Why are we starting this? Uh, Brutal practice back up again, especially when we have a justice system that we we know that is so demonstrably unequal and racist. Uh, But no, he's bragging that he made a promise to Arizona voters that people who commit the ultimate crime get the ultimate punishment. Right?
1: He's not killing enough people. You know, today, the Arizona Supreme Court also uh, rejected, uh, finally, after what is it now, uh, a year and a half at least, uh, these allegations that. that Donald Trump had actually won the election in Arizona and uh, was denied that victory. Huh. They rejected it, and it's it's over in hmm. Arizona, finally.
0: Okay, yeah. good. Well, good riddance. Uh, we also got news today that the the Minneapolis police officer who shot fatally, yes. shot uh, 22-year-old Amir Locke during a SWAT raid in downtown Minneapolis is not going to be charged with a crime. And this is the instance where... Uh, it, Police officers yelling, swat, swat, burst through a door and within seconds shot a man who had been sleeping on a couch under a blanket who did have a gun visible in his hand. Again, you're breaking down a door, screaming at people and then within seconds killing them. I think there has to be there has to be a better way to do policing in the United States. So, yeah, they have they have discussed, you know. People, the police officers uh, looking into this said they could see that Locke presented a threat to the officer and the officer was justified and there was no reason to uh, to come up with any charges.
1: I served time with a guy who was a cocaine dealer, Mm. admittedly, and uh, he and his wife lived on this uh, and their two children. They lived on this isolated farm in western Pennsylvania, and um, he had uh, cocaine in the barn
0: and uh, Scale. Cocaine in the barn. I know. Sounds like an album I want to listen to. Like That's a jamboree. I really want to go. I want to go to the cocaine in the barn evening. That sounds great. He
1: didn't want his kids to stumble onto it. So because he's being a good father, right? Don't stumble on the cocaine in the (laughs) barn. That's my first track. So the the cops, uh, not the cops, the FBI uh, secured a a no knock warrant. He happened to be up to go to the bathroom at six o'clock in the morning. And he sees these people all in black running toward his front door. Mm -hmm. And he thought that it was a drug gang raiding his house to kill him and take his cocaine. So he shouted to his wife. His wife took a gun out of her nightstand, ran to the top (gasps) of the stairs and fired two shots and killed the first FBI agent in the door. He agreed to do her time. So he got 25 years. She got 10. But it's a no-knock warrant. Yeah. Nobody knew that they were FBI agents. So, you know, the cops have to figure this policy out because it clearly doesn't work. Raining
0: on my cocaine bar and jamboree, John. (laughs) I I still like it. Also, we forgot I forgot to mention Marjorie Taylor Greene just once again on on Twitter. On Twitter, deciding uh, that trans people are pedophiles. Right. Uh, which I guess has you know, been you her know. thing all along. Yeah. yeah. There's a line in the sand. Either you are pro-pedophile and pro-transgender biological men, or you defend children and women, period. There's no other option. I just don't know where these predators yeah. are.
1: Right. But where they, are they? Point them out to me. I'd love to see them. I mean, she she also is throwing around the word groomer a lot lately, like in the last three or four days, that if if you're not a supporter of her extreme right-wing QAnon beliefs that you're a groomer for pedophiles.
0: Yeah, there's a story going around about uh the te- a Tennessee official now I can't remember if he's a a state senator or state attorney general, or maybe a senator uh having met seems like having met his his future wife at a 4H of a presentation in the office. She's much, much younger than she is. She was a member of the 4-H club. Coming, So, you know, sorry, Marjorie Taylor Greene might want to think pretty carefully about oh. calling out groomers considering I'll the party see. that she's in. It's just so, it's so sleazy. And it's so dangerous for trans people. Yes, And it's it is. so, it's just not, it's not based on anything. It just, you know, I don't know. I trans, just think. Trans people in
1: jail die at a fantastically higher rate than non-trans people, whether it's by violence or by suicide. Not to say, not to even mention the, the ridiculously higher rate of suicide and of violent deaths that they have on the outside of jails.
0: Yeah. And yet again, when you are, anytime you are a member of a minority population, the, the, the mere presence of some member of your population doing a crime is somehow uh, reflective of you, you, right? Whereas if you are, you know, comfortably in the majority, I don't have to answer for the crimes of all other women or all other white people or other white women. And that is really how it should be for everybody else. We are going to have to leave it there, John. Uh, I want to say thanks to all of our guests and the production and engineering team here, of course. And on behalf of John Kiriakou and myself, Michelle Whitty, thank you for listening. We will see you tomorrow. Bye, everybody.